Chapter Thirty of Unknown to History by Charlotte Mary Young. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tanika, Madison, Alabama. Tete a tete. During that close imprisonment at Tixall, Cicely learnt to know her mother both in her strength and weakness. They were quite alone, except that Sir Walter Ashton daily came to perform the office of taster and carver at their meals, and on the first evening his wife dragged herself upstairs to superintend the arrangement of their bedroom, and to supply them with toilette requisites according to her own very limited notions and possessions. The dame was a very homely, hard-featured lady, deaf and extremely fat and heavy, one of the old, uncultivated, rustic gentry, who had lagged far behind the general civilization of the country, and regarded all refinements as effeminate French vanities. She believed, likewise, all that was said against Queen Mary, whom she looked on as barely restrained from plunging a dagger into Elizabeth's heart, and letting Palmer's hellhounds loose upon Tixall. To have such a guest imposed on her was no small grievance, and nothing but her husband's absolute mandate could have induced her to come up with the maids, who brought sheets for the bed, pillows, and the like needments. Mary tried to make her requests as moderate as necessity would permit, but when they had been shouted into her ears by one of the maids, she shook her head at most of them as articles unknown to her, nor did she ever appear again. The arrangement of the bedchamber was performed by two maid-servants, the knight himself, meanwhile, standing a grim sentinel over the two ladies in the outer apartment, to hinder their holding any communication through the servants. All requests had to be made to him, and on the first morning Mary made a most urgent one for writing materials, books, and either needlework or spinning. Pen and ink had been expressly forbidden. The only book in the house was a thumbed and torn primer, but Dame Joan, after much grumbling at the fine lady's whims, vouchsafed to send up a distaff, some wool, a piece of unbleached linen, and a skein of white thread. Queen Mary executed therewith an exquisite piece of embroidery, which, having escaped Dame Joan's first impulse to burn it on the spot, remained for many years the show and the wonder of Tixall. Save for this employment, she said she should have gone mad in her utter uncertainty about her own fate, or that of those involved with her. To ask questions of Ashton was like asking them of a post— he would give her no notion whether her servants were at Chartley or not, whether they were at large or in confinement, far less as to who was accused of the plot, and what had been discovered. All that could be said for him was that his churlishness was passive and according to his ideas of duty. He was a very reluctant and uncomfortable jailer, but he never insulted nor willfully ill-used his unfortunate captive." Thus Mary was left to dwell on the little she knew, namely that Babington and his fellows were arrested, and that she was supposed to be implicated, but there her knowledge ceased, except that Humphrey's warning convinced her that Cuthbert Langston had been at least one of the traitors. He had, no doubt, been offended and disappointed at that meeting during the hawking at Tutbury. "'Yet I need scarcely to ask the why or the wherefore,' she said. "'I have spent my life in a world of treachery.' No sooner do I take a step on ground that seems ever so firm than it proves quicksand. They will swallow me at last. Daily, more than daily, did she and Cicely go over together that hurried conversation on the moor, and try to guess whether Langston intended to hint at Cicely's real birth. 
he had certainly not disclosed her secret as yet, or Paulet would never have selected her as sprung of a loyal house, but he might guess at the truth, and be waiting for an opportunity to sell it dearly to those who would regard her as possessed of dangerous pretensions. And far more anxiously did the Queen recur to examining Cicely on what she had gathered from Humphrey. This was, in fact, nothing, for he had been on his guard against either telling or hearing anything inconsistent with loyalty to the English Queen, and thus had avoided conversation on these subjects. Nor did the Queen communicate much. Cicely never understood clearly what she dreaded, what she expected to be found among her papers, or what had been in the packet thrown into the well. The girl did not dare to ask questions, and the Queen always turned off indirect inquiries, or else assured her that she was still a simple happy child, and that it was better for her own sake that she should know nothing, then caressed her, and fondly pitied her for not being admitted to her mother's confidence, but said piteously that she knew not what the secrets of queens and captives were, not like those of Mistress Susan about the goose to be dressed, or the crimson hose to be knitted for a surprise to her good husband. But Cicely could see that she expected the worst, and believed in a set purpose to shed her blood, and she spent much time in devotion, though sorely distressed, by the absence of all those appliances which her church had taught her to rest upon. And these prayers, which often began with floods of tears, so that Cicely drew away into the window with her distaff in order not to seem to watch them, ended with rendering her serene and calm, with a look of high resignation, as having offered herself as a sacrifice and martyr for her church. And yet was it wholly as a Roman Catholic that she had been hated, intrigued against, and deposed in her own kingdom? Was it simply as a Roman Catholic that she was, as she said, the subject of a more cruel plot than that of which she was accused? Mysterious woman that she was, she was never more mysterious than to her daughter in those seventeen days that they were shut up together. It did not so much strike Cicely at the time, when she was carried along with all her mother's impulses and emotions, without reflecting on them, but when in after-time she thought over all that then had passed, she felt how little she had understood. They suffered a good deal from the heat and closeness of the rooms, for Mary was like a modern Englishwoman in her craving for free air, and those were the dog-days. They had contrived, by the help of a diamond that the Queen carried about with her, after the fashion of the time, to extract a pain or two from the lattices so ingeniously that the master of the house never found it out and as their two apartments looked out different ways, they avoided the full sunshine, for they had neither curtains nor blinds to their windows, by moving from one to the other. But still the closeness was very oppressive, and in the heat of the day, just after dinner, they could do nothing but lie on the table, while the Queen told stories of her old life in France, till sometimes they both went to sleep. Most of her dainty needlework was done in the long light mornings, for she hardly slept at all in the hot nights. Cis scarcely saw her in bed, for she prayed long after the maiden had fallen asleep, and was up with the light and embroidering by the window. She only now began to urge Cicely to believe as she did, and to join her church, taking blame to herself for never having attempted it more seriously. She told the oneness and the glory of Roman Catholicism as she had seen it in France, held out its promises and professions, and dwelt on the comfort of the intercession of the Blessed Virgin and the saints, assuring Cicely that there was nothing but sacrilege, confusion, and cruelty on the other side. 
Sometimes the maiden was much moved by the tender manner and persuasive words, and she really had so much affection and admiration for her mother as to be willing to do all that she wished, and to believe her the ablest and most clear-sighted of human beings. But whenever Mary was not actually talking to her, there was a curious swaying back of the pendulum in her mind to the conviction that what Master Richard and Mistress Susan believed must be the right thing that led to trustworthy goodness. She had an enthusiastic love for the Queen, but her faith and trust were in them and in Humphrey, and she could see religious matters from their point of view better than from that of her mother. So though the Queen often felt herself carrying her daughter along, she always found that there had been a slipping back to the old standpoint every time she began again. She was considering with some anxiety of the young maiden's future. "'Could I but send thee to my good sister, the Duchess of Lorraine?' She would see thee well and royally married, she said. Then couldst thou be known by thy own name, and rank as princess of Scotland. If I can only see my corsel again, she would take thee safely and prove all, and thy hand will be precious to many. It may yet bring back the true faith to England, when my brave cousin of Guise has put down the Bernies, and when the poor stumbling block here is taken away. Oh, speak not of that, dear madam, my mother. I must speak, child. I must think how it will be with thee, so marvellously saved and restored to be my comfort. I must provide for thy safety and honour. Happily the saints guarded me from ever mentioning thee in my letters, so that there is no fear that Elizabeth should lay hands on thee, unless Langston should have spoken, the which can hardly be. But if I'll be broken up here, I must find thee a dwelling with my kindred worthy of thy birth. Mr. and Mrs. Talbot would take me home, murmured Cicely. Girl, after all the training I have bestowed on thee, is it possible that thou wouldst fain go back to make cheeses and brew small beer with those Yorkshire boars, rather than reign a princess? I thought thy heart was nobler. Cicely hung her head, ashamed. I was very happy there, she said in excuse. Happy, ay, with the milkmaid's bliss. There may be fewer sorrows in such a life as that, just as those comely kind of Ashtons that I see grazing in the park have fewer sorrows than human creatures. But what know they of our joys, or what know the commonality of the joy of ruling, calling brave men one's own, riding before one's men in the field, wielding councils of state, winning the love of thousands. Nay, nay, I will not believe it of mine own child, unless tis the base border blood that is in her which speaks. Cicely was somewhat overborne by being thus accused of meanness of tastes, when she had heard the Queen talk enviously of that same homely life which now she despised so heartily. She faltered in excuse. Methought, madam, you'd be glad to think there was one loving shelter ever open to me. "'Ah, loving! I see what it is,' said the Queen, in a tone of disgust. "'It is the sailor loon that has overthrown it all. A couple of wax in the garden with him, and the silly maid is ready to throw over all nobler thoughts.' "'Madam, he spoke no such word to me.' "'Toss the infection, child, only the infection.' "'Madam, I pray you, whist, child, thou wilt be a perilous bride for any commoner.' and let that thought of no other keep thee from lowering thine eyes to such as he. Were I and thy brother taken out of the way, 
none would stand between thee and both thrones. What would English or Scots say to find thee a household Joan, wedded to one of Drake's rude pirate fellows? I tell thee it would be the worse for him. They have made it treason to wed royal blood without Elizabeth's consent. No, no, for his sake as well as thine own, thou must promise me never thus to debase thy royal lineage. Mother, neither he nor I thought or spoke of such a matter since we knew how it was with me. And you give me your word? Yes, madam, said Cicely, who really had never entertained the idea of marrying Humphrey, implicit as was her trust in him as a brother and protector. That is well, and so soon as I am restored to my poor servants, if I ever am, I will take measures for sending the French remnant to their own land, nor shall my corsels quit thee till she hath seen thee safe in the keeping of Madame de Lorraine, or of Queen Louise, who is herself a kinswoman of ours, and, they say, is piety and gentleness herself. "'As you will, madam,' said Cicely, her heart sinking at the thought of the strange new world before her, but perceiving that she must not be the means of bringing Humphrey into trouble and danger. Perhaps she felt this more from seeing how acutely her mother suffered at times from sorrow for those involved in her disaster. She gave Babington and his companions, as well as now and Curl, up for lost, as the natural consequence of having befriended her, and she blamed herself remorsefully, after the long experience of the fatal consequences of meddling in her affairs, for having entered into correspondence with the bright, enthusiastic boy whom she remembered, and having lured him without doubt to his death. "'Alack! alack!' she said. "'And yet such is liberty, that I should forget all I have gone through, and do the like again if the door seemed open to me.' At least there is this comfort, cruel child, thy little heart was not set on him, gracious and handsome though he were, and thy mother's most devoted knight. Ah, poor youth, it wrings my soul to think of him. But at least he is a Catholic, his soul will be safe, and I will have hundreds of masses sung for him. Oh, that I knew how it goes with them! This torture of silent suspense is the most cruel of all." Mary paced the room with impatient misery, and in such a round the weary hours dragged by, only mitigated by one welcome thunderstorm, for seventeen days, whose summer length made them seem the more endless. Cicely, who had never before in her life been shut up in the house so many hours, was pale, listless, and even fretful toward the Queen, who bore with her petulance so tenderly as more than once to make her weep bitterly for very shame. After one of these fits of tears, Mary pleaded earnestly with Sir Walter Ashton for permission for the maiden to take a turn in the garden every day, but though the good gentleman's complexion bore testimony that he lived in the fresh air, he did not believe in its efficacy. He said he had no orders, and could do nothing without warrant. But that evening at supper, the serving-maid brought up a large brew of herbs, dark and nauseous, which Dame Ashton had sent as good for the young lady's migram. "'Will you taste it, sir?' asked the Queen of Sir Walter, with a revival of her lively humour. "'The foul fiend have me if a drop comes within my lips,' muttered the knight. "'I am not bound to taste for a tire-woman,' he added, leaving it in doubt whether his objection rode from a distaste to his lady's missus, or from pride, and he presently said, perhaps half ashamed of himself, and willing to cast the blame on the other side, "'It was kindly meant of my good dame.' and if you choose to flout it, rather than benefit by it, 
That is no affair of mine. He left the portion, and Cicely disposed of it by small instalments at the windows, and a laugh over the evident horror it excited in the master, did the captives at least as much good as the chamomile, centuary, wormwood, and other ingredients of the bowl. Happily it was only two days later that Sir Walter announced that his custody of the Queen was over, and Sir Remias Paulet was come for her. There was little preparation to make, for the two ladies had worn their riding-dresses all the time, but on reaching the great door where Sir Amias, attended by Humphrey, was awaiting them, they were astonished to see a whole troop on horseback, all armed with headpieces, swords, and pistols, to the number of a hundred and forty. "'Where far is this little army raised?' she asked. "'It is by the order of the Queen,' replied Ashton, with his accustomed surly manner, and need enough in the time of such treasons. The Queen turned to him with tears on her cheeks. "'Good gentlemen,' she said, "'I am not witting of anything against the Queen. Am I to be taken to the tower?' "'No, madam, back to Chartley,' replied Sir Remias. "'I knew they would never let me see my cousin,' sighed the Queen. "'Sir,' as Paulet placed her on her horse, "'of your pity tell me whether I shall find all my poor servants there.' "'Yea, madam, save Mr. Now and Mr. Curl, who are answering for themselves and for you.' Moreover, Curl's wife was delivered two days since. This intelligence filled Mary with more anxiety than she chose to manifest to her unsympathising surroundings. Cis, meanwhile, had been assisted to mount by Humphrey, who told her that Mrs. Curl was thought to be doing well, but that there were fears for the babe. It was impossible to exchange many words, for they were immediately behind the Queen and her two warders, and Humphrey could only tell her that his father had been at Chartley, and had gone on to London but there was inexpressible relief in hearing the sound of his voice, and knowing she had someone to think for her and protect her. The promise she had made to the Queen only seemed to make him more entirely her brother by putting that other love out of the question. There was a sad sight at the gate, a whole multitude of wretched-looking beggars, and poor of all ages and degrees of misery, who all held out their hands and raised one cry of, "'Alms! Alms, gracious lady!' alms for the love of heaven mary looked round on them with tearful eyes and exclaimed alack good folk i have nothing to give you i am as much a beggar as yourselves the escort dispersed them roughly paulet assuring her that they were nothing but a sort of idle folk who were only encouraged in laziness by her bounty which was very possibly true of a certain proportion of them but it had been a sore grief to her that since Cuthbert Langston's last approach in disguise she had been prevented from giving alms. In due time Chartley was reached, and the first thing the Queen did on dismounting was to hurry to visit poor Barbara Curl, who had, on her increasing illness, been removed to one of the guest-chambers, where the Queen now found her, still in much distress about her husband, who was in close imprisonment in Walsingham's house, and had not been allowed to send her any kind of message and in still more immediate anxiety about her newborn infant, who did not look at all if, as if its little life would last many hours. She lifted up her languid eyelids, and scarcely smiled when the Queen declared, "'Say, Barbara, I am come back again to you, to nurse you and my goddaughter into health to receive your husband again. Nay, I have no fears for him. They cannot hurt him. He has done nothing, and is a Scottish subject beside. My son shall write to claim him.' she declared, with such an assumed air of confidence that a shade of hope crossed the pale face, 
and the fear for her child became the more pressing of the two little griefs. "'We will christian her at once,' said Mary, turning to the nearest attendant. "'Bear a request from me to Sir Amias that his chaplain may come at once and baptize my godchild.' Sir Amias was waiting in the gallery in very ill humour at the Queen's delay, which kept his supper waiting. Moreover, his party had a strong dislike to private baptism, holding that the important point was the public covenant made by responsible persons, and the notion of the sponsorship of a Roman Catholic likewise shocked him. So he made ungracious answer that he would have no baptism save in church before the congregation with true Protestant gossips. "'So saith he,' exclaimed Mary, when the reply was reported to her, "'Nay, my poor little one, thou shalt not be shut out of the kingdom of heaven for his churlishness. And taking the infant on her knee, she dipped her hand in the bowl of water that had been prepared for the chaplain, and baptized it by her own name of Mary. The existing prayer-book had been made expressly to forbid lay baptism and baptism by women, of the special desire of the reformers, and Sir Amias was proportionately horrified, and told her it was an offence for the archbishop's court. "'Very like,' said Mary. Your Protestant courts love to slay both the body and the soul. Will it please you to open my own chambers to me, sir? Sir Amias handed the key to one of her servants, but she motioned him aside. Those who put me forth must admit me, she said. The door was opened by one of the gentlemen of the household, and they entered. Every repository had been ransacked. Every cabinet stood open and empty. Every drawer had been pulled out. Wearing apparel and the like remained, but even this showed signs of having been tossed over and roughly rearranged by masculine fingers. Mary stood in the midst of the room, which had a strange air of desolation and angry light in her eyes, and her hands clasped tightly one into the other. Paulet attempted some expression of regret for the disarray, pleading his orders. "'It needs not excuse, sir,' said Mary. "'I understand to whom I owe this insult.' There are two things that your queen can never take from me, royal blood and the Catholic faith. One day some of you will be sorry for what you have now put upon me. I would be alone, sir. And she proudly motioned him to the door with a haughty gesture, showing her still fully queen in her own apartments. Paulet obeyed, and when he was gone the queen seemed to abandon the command over herself she had preserved all this time. She threw herself into Jean Kennedy's arms, and wept freely and piteously, while the good lady, rejoicing at heart to have recovered her bairn, fondled and soothed her with soft Scottish epithets, as though the worn woman had been a child again. "'Yea, nurse, mine own nurse, I am come back to thee, for a little while, only a little while, nurse, for they will have my blood, and, oh, I would it were ended, for I am a-weary of it all.' Jean and Elizabeth Curl tried to cheer and console her, alarmed at this unwanted depression, but she only said, "'Get me to bed, nurse. I am sore for She was altogether broken down by the long suspense, the hardships and the imprisonment she had undergone, and she kept her bed for several days, hardly speaking, but apparently reposing in the relief afforded by the recovered care and companionship of her much-loved attendants. There she was when Paulet came to demand the keys of the caskets where her treasure was kept. Melville had refused to yield them, and all the Queen said was, "'Robbery is to be added to the rest,' a sentence which greatly stung the knight. But he actually seized all the coin that he found, including what belonged to Now and Curl, 
and only retaining enough for present expenses, sent the rest off to London. End of chapter 30 Recording by Tanika, Madison, Alabama